everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today we are continuing our theme of this year, which is New Year, New Music, to talk about new music and the voice. And this episode is talking about why a lot of people have some hesitancy about getting into and performing new music. Um, and so we wanted to talk about why that sometimes happens, but we also really wanted to have you guys listen to one of our really good friends, Jens Ibsen, who is a composer and a singer, and talk about how we as musicians can better navigate situations where we're performing new music and make it a good experience for everybody. But before we get into all of those and all the logistics, let's talk about some announcements. You guys, it's March 2nd, which marks the final day of our 30-day practice challenge. Yay! This experience has been so fun. Yes, yay. And we had over 60 people join us in an effort to bring joy to our practice routine. So for those of you guys that participated, if you completed the challenge, um, give us a big huzzah. You can post on Instagram or Facebook and make sure to use hashtag offstage 30 day challenge and we will be reposting all of your guys's posts and our stories and we're just so happy to have built this little community and we're so proud of everybody who's joined us and uh done some good work on their practice routine yeah congratulations to everyone it is no small feat to get up every day and practice and even if you didn't make it every single day you put your best foot forward and congratulations yeah and then another announcement is to um please leave us a review (laughs) 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 um Our last podcast review was in 2020, and it's now 2021, so who wants to be the first to review us in 2021? Um, We've actually been really surprised. We've had a couple listeners reach out to us who have told us that they've, like, randomly found our podcast through just searching for opera podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, um, which is crazy to us. And the reason that they're able to find us is because of those reviews. So if you could leave us a review, share our podcast with your friends... Um, even if you post a, a screenshot of you guys listening to one of our episodes where we post it on our stories and give you a little shout out. So keep on spreading the love in 2021. It's so helpful. And like I said, Michelle and I do read every single review <laughs> and then cry about it because they're so sweet. So it's very helpful. And also it gets us in our feelings. <laughs> so true. We have one more thing before we get into this episode that we wanted to talk about because uh, there were two big news items in terms of classical music that popped up this week and we thought it would be a mistake to not take a second to actually chat about what happened. So I don't know how many people have seen this but I imagine a good number of you have. The poster for Oberlin's uh, <laughs> let me find the actual name of it. A Celebration of Black Artistry. Now, if you haven't seen this poster yet, let me describe it for you. It's a bright orange poster with white type. It's a virtual recital and says a celebration of black artistry. Works by William Grant Still, Jeffrey Mumford. Great. Cool. The pictures on the poster, though, are what caught everyone's attention because they're all white people. Five (sighs) very white people. Five very white people who are supposedly performing this celebration of black artistry. Uh, and so people, rightfully, pointed out that that doesn't look good for Oberlin. And they were asking, why would you do that? To which Oberlin deleted the post, which we, (laughs) I think a lot of people have rightfully called out as a dirty delete because they should have left it up for the conversations that were happening. And then they posted an apology. Michelle, would you, would you like to tell them a little bit about what the apology actually said? (laughs) 
Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, aside from this just being like a human disaster, like PR disaster out the wazoo, but they don't even give a good apology and their apology completely misses the point. So basically they do the dirty delete and they said, you know, on Sunday, February 28th, we posted a flyer on social media to promote the event in our month-long Black History Month celebration. While the program showcased Black composers, the flyer featured only photos of five white performers. We acknowledge wholeheartedly that this was problematic, and we accept and agree with many of the critiques we received in response. But then they backtrack, right? And they say, well, this is just one of many events that we've been putting on, um, and we're really proud of them. Um Okay, what does that mean? You did, you celebrated Black History Month. Congratulations. Like, okay. Um, and they then further say that we acknowledge it was a mistake to post this event, uh, event without context and without pictures of the composers themselves. And we're deeply sorry. <sighs> There's a lot of issues here. Aside from this apology just being super lukewarm. The problem isn't the graphic. The problem is that we're celebrating a history of black artistry and there is not a single black person involved (laughs) or on the program. Yeah. And that's the thing. They're like, we posted this out of context. No, we have all the context we needed, which is that you're putting on something that's supposed to celebrate black voices without literally using any black voices. And there's one of two things happening here. Either they don't have black students and faculty to actually perform the works, which is a problem. Or they do, but they didn't want to use them, which is a problem. Or they do, and those people turned it down because they felt like the administration was diminishing their role by specifically giving them this concert, which also speaks to a problem. Yeah, I mean, the idea that saying, you know, our post, um, we, the mistake is that we didn't give you enough context makes it seem like there is a context in which having five white performers perform not there's no issue with them performing these works but if you're going to be celebrating the history of black artistry and there are no people involved then what what are we doing that we're missing the point and there is no context in which that's a good thing So I hate the fact that they're like, oh, well, it was out of context. Like you guys just, you know, whatever. We were misleading. It's like, no, like you said, we have all the information we needed. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And that's the thing. You're right. It's not like people can't. It's not like white people can't perform these works. It's just the questionability of of celebrating black artistry while not celebrating the black artists either at your university or once again, barring the problem that you have none, which is something to think about. Uh, those in your community. Yeah, I mean, even from a design perspective, the least important text is the names of the Black composers that they're honoring. So the whole thing is just very, very messy. And I think it's very dangerous to delete the evidence. Um, I know from like a marketing perspective, like when you mess up, Like, that's your first instinct (laughs) out of self-preservation. But the reason that that is so dismissive is that there were so many good conversations and so many great points being brought up by the community and from Oberlin alumni. Um, And when you just delete it, it's, it's not the best way to show 
to then turn around and have like a weak apology and be like, we're listening. Like, sorry, we're working on it. And it's like, well, you deleted all of the community's feedback. So are you really listening? Yeah, don't delete the evidence, especially when you're still in the middle of sorting out the situation and admitting fault. Yeah, it's... They've also, by the way, I went to go pull up the post. They've put up another post that's like, we promise we're so diverse, which is a bad way to handle things. Yeah, it's 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 messy. And then in their new post... People don't want you to prove all the good things you've done. They, they really just want you to understand why what you did was wrong. Yeah, and their new post is a picture of four black... Um, what composers yeah composers and performers (laughs) people don't really care what you have to say at this point like the only way you rebuild a reputation after you make a mess like this is is by doing the right thing nobody really cares if you say we're sorry because that just doesn't prove anything at this point yeah they also re-quote um a part of their position on their initiative on racial equity and diversity and it's like, what? Why are you? What are you pulling out receipts for? Like, just own up to it. Admit that you were wrong, and in, in not a dismissive way, leave the post up for posterity's sake, and just do better without saying like, "We hear you. We're gonna do better." Like, it never happened. Also, the end of the statement is kind of really weird, which is it's a quote from someone, a professor and conductor which everyone has a right to their opinion, but we continue to look for a balance between conservatory tradition and embracing new music, embracing diversity, and promoting new voices. And the way that's phrased is to say that conservatory tradition doesn't support any of those things. Guys, the whole thing's a hot, hot, hot mess. So Michelle and I will be offering a masterclass to institutions on how to apologize. And (laughs) no, no, I'm joking. We're not qualified to tell them exactly what to do either. But it's uh, it's another disappointing day for uh, institutions <laughs> in the arts. Another <laughs> disappointing reality uh, in, in music right now. We've talked a couple times uh, on different podcasts and Instagram lives about how Met, the Met has not been paying their orchestra musicians and uh, why that's such a disappointing reality and what it means for those people because so many of those people live in, obviously, New York a place where it's almost impossible to sustain yourself without pay. And we have gotten to the point where other orchestras are calling out the Met for not paying its orchestra and for not using them. Because here's the thing, the Met hasn't stopped fully performing. They've just decided that because of, uh, I assume, union contracts and things and because of obligations they would have to fulfill if they did so, they're not using their own orchestra. So they don't have to pay them. It's so gross. Uh, it's really it's messed so up. Gross. So Vienna, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra put out a letter, and I'm I'm just gonna speed read it to you. Dear ladies and gentlemen, the world is watching. Thirty percent of the members of the Met Orchestra can no longer sustain a living in New York due to being faced with no salary for Metropolitan Opera since April first, twenty twenty. This number will likely climb higher as the crisis continues. The Met global reputation and cultural landscape of New York City would be devastated by the loss of the artists of this caliber. The orchestra hosts some of the best players in the world. These musicians have a cultural and economic impact beyond that of bringing great opera to the world. They are teachers and mentors, too. They contribute to the communities they live in by inspiring people in all areas and stages of life. The members of the orchestra need more advocacy from their management and support from the government. There should be more attention on this cultural devastation before it is too late. We as colleagues and friends from the Vienna Philharmonic hope that Metropolitan Opera can find ways to adapt and include their house musicians in their programming efforts moving forward. And then also the Munich Philharmonic Orchestra 
uh, said, we want to join Vienna Phil in expressing our solidarity with our fellow orchestra colleagues in New York. Um, so first of all, not only did they call out the Met, they also called out our government, which is fair. These, you know, as much as I, I'm loath to say that I want some of these institutions to continue, I do think that our musicians should be protected. It would be a huge cultural loss to lose some of those musicians. We should be paying the Met Orchestra. That should have been Met Opera's first instinct, should be to protect their musicians. But it's not. And now the world's calling us out on yeah, it. Yeah, it's so bizarre to me. I mean, the Met Orchestra has always kind of, like, functioned as a little bit of a separate entity as, you know, the Met as an institution at large. And so have the um, opera supers and the chorus and all of this. But, like, now it really feels like it's Group A versus group B and it's kind of crazy to see that the Met as an institution has allowed this to just get worse and worse because it's like if you don't take care of your musicians when you need them most and you're employing other musicians like how can you ever expect to be respected by the people who share your title ever again well yeah and and the whole thing is just a disaster I mean, because they haven't, like I said, they haven't stopped putting on galas and fundraising events and all of this. They're just not paying their house musicians for it. <sighs> what a time to be alive. Yeah, what Nightmare. a week, man. What a week for opera news. For opera audacity. That, welcome to our new series, Disappointments in Institutions. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of the big, the big takeaway is... Um, accountability watch <laughs> oh well complete accountability watch because i mean we all knew when these big institutions were were you know issuing apologies that did not acknowledge that black lives matter you know all of these we're listening we're watching we're working to to be more equitable and inclusive without any sort of game plan like now a year later we're seeing <laughs> basically a lack of change in any the reality of, those- of that companies and we're seeing on the flip side change from those who did include actionable steps so it's a really important time for us as young artists to keep our eyes open and really think uh long and hard about which organizations we want to support and which organizations are just keeping up appearances and you know do the hard work and on that note if you have any institutions any posts you see that you think belong in this series that you'd like us to talk about on the podcast please send them to us we'd love to see more obviously we keep our eyes open for this kind of stuff but we can't catch it all so if you want to out your own institution or whatever send it to us (laughs) tell us all about it uh yes and now to to switch to a new topic that institutions are also very bad with Let's talk about new music. So this episode was actually inspired by an article that Jens had sent me uh, entitled Composers, Performers, and Consent. It is on newmusicusa.org, and we will link to it. Um, but uh, And it's by Alex Temple. But I thought it was a really interesting exploration of something I hadn't considered, which is consent in, in terms of uh, performance. And it's something we talk about when we do, you know, physical intimacy scenes on stage. But it hasn't wasn't something I considered in terms of vocal health and like well-being when you are bringing a new work to life. It's a really great article. Yeah, the idea of consent is also very important when you're looking at doing new works in that there's a power dynamic between you as the performer and the composer, whether that's, um, like you said, drawing boundaries about vocal health or even just, you know, navigating differences in interpretation. 
and collaboration. Yeah. But I think like that also kind of points to one of the major reasons people don't really keep doing new music outside of school, which is a lot of people have a just a bad experience with it, uh, especially in undergrad. Because like undergrad music students, especially voice students, but instrumentalists as well, are usually the sacrificial lamb served up to student composers. <laughs> yep. A lot of places require you to to perform new works with the composers at the school because the composers also need people to perform their stuff. And that's totally understandable. Like, I, I, I'm not saying that's, like, the worst thing in the world. But there is an issue when you are obligated to do something, navigating the idea of consent, what you can and can't do. Because a, a lot of these composers will put together really technically difficult pieces. Absolutely. Yeah, the... The experience of doing new music within the confines of school and then outside in a professional setting, two completely different ballgames. And I think the reason that new music in school can leave such a bad taste in your mouth is because, like you said, there's there's often a problem of consent. Um, a lot of these ensembles, a lot of these singers are kind of being forced to either do a mu- new music ensemble or to perform for these composers, which, like you said, is neither good nor bad. But the part where it gets tricky is we're often faced with very short deadlines, complex music, not a lot of rehearsal time. Um, and when all of that is added and jumbled together and you're going to perform a new piece that you didn't really get to rehearse or coach, like your reputation is still on the line when you go to performance time. And that feeling of insecurity of that, like, well, I'm going to have to go do this piece that's like definitely not ready to perform. Hope it goes well. Like that is the worst feeling as a performer. It's just... And, like, you realistically should not be put in that position. And it's usually just the fault of the class or faculty not kind of helping facilitate a better timeline. Yeah. But also, like, you know, a lot of these teachers are trying to push their composition students. So a lot of times the stuff you'll see um, has to fulfill certain guidelines that a composition teacher has put out there for them so that can make things rhythmically difficult or they could be writing an extended vocal technique you know a lot of people who I know who have larger voices don't straight tone well they just it, it it's harder to do when you have a bigger voice and so some extended techniques microtones straight toning uh, growling vocal fry all of these things can be very damaging to do too but they are expected of the composition students and therefore expected of the people performing. Yeah. Which which can make things tricky. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the other thing is, as well, is obviously it gets better with age. But when you're an undergrad student, you are still so early in the development of your voice and your technique and your um, music skills. And so sometimes when you're faced with these extended techniques or just like maybe... Uh, the tonality or the rhythm is way more complex than the Mozart stuff that you usually sing in undergrad. Like that can be really jarring as well. Um, and when you're put into that position and you don't even want to be in that position, that's where things get get real squirrely. Yeah. And I think also, you know, at the end of the day, it's also just a big pressure on everyone. Like the student composer is trying to get a good recording of their work. But the student singers are just trying to like, or the student musicians as a whole are just trying to get through all the music that they're required to play in a semester. 
And so it can just be very frustrating because everyone's just trying to do their best. Um, but because not everyone is choosing to be in that situation voluntarily and because especially in student situations, you don't have the kind of flexibility of giving feedback all the time. Uh, it can be just very high stress. And I think it that's what really turns people off to doing new music before they even really get started. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just human nature, right? When you have a really bad experience with something for the first time, like, why would you go back and do it? Um, especially if you're being forced to do something. But I think, I think the thing that uh, really was interesting to me about that article and what made me want to have this conversation about new music was that I guess I'd never considered the idea of consent in this way, which when, like, when we obviously just talked a little bit about it there, it makes a lot of sense because I think, especially now, there, there are expectations on singers to be able to perform new music. And for Sopranos, it, you know, there's some music with just unrealistic high notes, unrealistic breath control. Um, you're not going to hear words uh, above a certain note. And there's all of this expectation of bringing a composer's work to life that doesn't include being realistic about the humans who have to make it. For singers or for um, instrumentalists. Yeah, and I think like as a composer, as a performer, you need to be really clear up front about what it is you expect of the other. Yeah. And come to some sort of conclusion. Um, in the article, it talks about one composer who uh, had a performer reach out to them about doing a collaboration. Um, and when the composer said, oh, I want to do this, the singer was like, oh, well, I don't want to do that. And then the collaboration just didn't happen. Um, and obviously that can seem like a loss, but really it's a win because if the two parties are not comfortable making a certain type of art together, then honestly it's just better for everyone that the collaboration doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing that young composers and young musicians can really learn is that it is okay to have, you know, it's okay to have like a, absolutes like if you have something really vocally tricky in your piece but also you think it's a make or break part of your piece it's okay to say like this has to happen and it's also okay for a singer to say then you're going to have to find another singer it's okay as a musician to be like I cannot do that and stay healthy there are also people in this in this thing like there was somebody who was who mentioned in this piece that they found straight tone for women especially, to be kind of infantilizing, which I don't necessarily agree with personally, but I thought it was an interesting position. <laughs> You're allowed to have your own personal boundaries about what you will and won't do on stage, uh, and that includes vocally. Yeah, which is why, like, consent and conversation is so important upright. You know, I think also like when you're put in the position of having to like being commissioned to write a piece for an ensemble, uh, the article gives an example of one who literally found out everything he could about the members of the ensemble and then took all of that information and then wrote a piece. And it was a huge success because it was a real true collaboration that allowed the composer to fully explore everything that he wanted to accomplish musically um, while also being you know respectful of the individuality of the ensemble members and they obviously had a wonderful time because the piece was pretty much perfectly written for them and I think like having that conversation ahead of time will lead to a much better end result because obviously composers want good recordings of their music yeah 
Um, and if your performers are not having a good time, then chances are you're not going to get a good recording. And then it's kind of like, why did she, like n- nobody involved takes this as a, a good experience in the end? And more often than actually running into problems where the where the collaboration truly ends, a lot of it is more negotiating, which is why we wanted to bring on a friend of ours who is a composer and singer and talk a little bit more about how to negotiate some of the common problems that you're going to run into as a as a singer doing new music and also how to like talk with composers and how to be a better collaborator. So I'm very excited to announce our friend Jens Ibsen is joining us. Jens, why don't you actually tell them a little bit about yourself? Oh, man. Uh, you know, the older, the older Sorry, I get... surprise bio. Oh, man. The, the <laughs> older I get, uh, the harder it is to explain my whole deal to people. But I will do my best. Um, I am a tenor and composer. I began life as a singer. And then about 10 years ago, I started writing music in high school. And I did both through undergrad. And was both, both of my degrees are in composition now at this point. But... Yeah, I do both in fairly equal measure nowadays. I'm really interested in metal. I'm a really big metal head, and so a lot of my work is pretty influenced by metal and other sort of distortion-heavy musics. Uh, and I'm also interested in incorporating the vocal hallmarks of those musics uh, into my work in future. So that's, broadly speaking, my whole thing. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, Michelle and I obviously know you from Pepperdine, and then you went on to... Manus. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, I double majored in voice and composition at Pepperdine. I didn't get the voice degree for some bureaucratic reasons I will not go into, but I mastered in composition as well at Manus and had a really, really great time there. I was lucky enough to study with Missy Bazzoli, whom many of you will know, since she's kind of blowing up right now, as the kids say. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was really it was really amazing getting to study with, with someone like that in particular. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, New York is a really good place to be an artist. You know, I met a lot of interesting people. I met a lot of really great colleagues and friends out there. However, I'm currently in the Bay Area uh, because of extenuating circumstances. And I've been back home here for about a year. I'm probably stick around for at least another year. Uh, may give New York another try, depending. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, the city's changed a lot, obviously. Um, and I think it's going to be a little while until things were, if not, you know, comparable to what they were, at least some kind of version of what they were. But in any case, I'm making do, and I've just been keeping my head down and, and, and making work and just kind of doing my own thing. Yeah. You are definitely someone who, both as a writer and a singer, has been in and around new music for a long time. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. So I was lucky enough to go to an arts high school. I went to the Ruth Asaba School of the Arts for high school in, here in San Francisco. You know, they had a very robust vocal program there. They really tried to make it as comparable to an undergraduate degree program as you possibly could. I think there are some questionable <laughs> choices made in how they went about that. Our, our director was an ex-Chanticleer member, so like we poached a lot of their repertoire um we ended up you know singing stuff like chen yi um in fact we made the only extant recording of this like one piece by stephen stuckey and uh, turned out pretty good if i may say so myself um so like we you know we did a lot of really really difficult um new music stuff that i mean honestly I've, i've never sung harder music since and it's been like almost 10 years or whatever so it speaks to the level of, of the program 
that we had. And then, of course, we didn't do a ton of new music at Pepperdine, really. I mean, Lauritsen is the only name that I'm coming up with right now that was even remotely new. I Don't get me wrong. I loved a lot of the stuff we sang at Pepperdine. I really enjoyed the choir there, actually. Dr. Ford is a godsend. Great man. But in grad school, it wasn't until grad school, really, that I was singing new music regularly again, at least in a choral setting. I joined a new music choir in New York. And yeah, I mean, that speaks for itself. We only did new music. And so yeah. um, there was there are a lot of different experiences there. <laughs> um, a, lot of, a lot of variety definitely. Uh, in quality, <laughs> but it, it definitely was informative. I think you do have a unique perspective, though, as someone who both writes and sings. Because obviously every composer has their own instrument or their own way where they kind of their own entrance into the musical world. And in a lot of ways that defines parts of their writing. Right. However, for the composers who are not singers, what are some what are some issues you normally see when you are looking at someone who probably doesn't sing writing vocal music? Things that singers might be running into, especially when they're working with undergrad composers, new composers. So, oh, man. I was a little nervous to come on and talk about this stuff because it really touches on so many things. Um, and to narrow the scope is very difficult, but I'm going to try and narrow it to the stuff that I think people can actually like, to the stuff that is actually actionable. So I'm just going to put it this way. I've spent enough time around composers and I've sung enough new music to know that there are a lot of people who don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and I think the people who don't know what they're doing really fall into either one of two categories they either don't know what they're doing because they don't care to know and that could be for we could un, we could spend the rest of this episode unpacking that that's the most dangerous composer and unfortunately it's the it's one who doesn't common. care it's it's quite common and you know and i think i think some of that has to do with stereotypes about about singers and and just like our general general misperceptions about us as a cohort within our field um again we could spend the next hour unpacking that i won't um, and then there are the people that would care if they knew that they should. Um, I'm not really here to talk about how to get people to care because I'm kind of skeptical that that's a thing anyone can do. I don't know that I can make anyone care about this as a problem, but I am here to provide the people that do have a good faith interest in writing music that is going to be successful, giving them pointers on how to do that. But I just wanted to kind of state that outright, because I think a lot of the singers are going to be like, oh my God, why are they like this? Why are composers like this? They've always wondered, and, and to be honest, it, it really, unfortunately, it, it does come down to, it, it's, it's, a, it's a interpersonal issue that stems from a cultural issue, which is beyond the scope of this podcast right now. But anyway, so some of the problems I've encountered. I think a big thing is tessitura. I think there's a there's a, the main thing that, that people hesitate to understand is the difference between range and tessitura. Just because you give someone a compass of, you know, uh, okay, I have a very, I'm, I'm lucky to have a quite substantial range. You know, I would say, you know, if someone were to write for me, I'd probably tell them from A3 to D5. That's probably what I would tell them comfortably is like where I can sing. I can definitely go beyond that in either direction. But if we're talking about what I can reliably do, that is what I would tell someone. That doesn't mean I want them to write a piece that has like a bunch of high Ds in there. And it, But at the same time... Only I, those two notes. But at the same time, <laughs> that doesn't mean you couldn't write a piece that did that either. It really comes down to tessitura and approach. And it's, it's, it's trying to explain it ends up sounding very metaphorical physical but and this, this is where i start to segue into into really my main point um 
all the composers I know personally who write the best vocal music um, have sung in some capacity. And that's not an accident. I think ultimately there really is, there are two ways to really get acquainted with the instrument and it's either to spend time actually on it. And this is true of anything. If you want to get good at writing for strings, you know, you, I mean, I don't want to tell anyone to get, you know, violin lessons to get good at writing for strings because I didn't do that. But what I did do is, and this is the other option I'll present, study the repertoire, study the people that do it really well. And when, when you are generating your ideas, make sure to, you know, try and map it out onto yourself. Like when I write bowings for orchestra, like I literally will, you know, take my hands and I will, I will pantomime what I'm having them do. And, and it does influence my choices, you know, and similarly, if you're a composer, even if you're not a singer, yeah, you should sing your own stuff. I, I, I it's surprising the amount of people that don't do this. Um, but like, you should sing the, the tune that you're writing. This is another thing I, I see just beyond vocal music. Like, this is just a problem with new music in general. There are people that write material that they could not execute themselves. I realize I sound like I'm being, I'm just dunking on people, and I sort of am. But I, I, it's enough of a problem that I have to just call it <laughs> like it is. You have a lot of composers writing material that they cannot execute themselves. Or they could execute themselves if they notated it more simply. Um <laughs> Whenever I hear this, I just always think. <laughs> oh, right I always there. think of Earl Koenig when they were like, he really didn't play it himself because his hand could not do the yeah. <laughs> do the uh, sextuplets. Yep, yep. <laughs> and like, and we'll we'll get back to that. We can get we can talk about idiomatic versus not idiomatic writing momentarily because that's that's you know that is super relevant to what we're talking about. But I, I was you know I've been called out for that a time. Well, I had someone ask me about it in a piece once, so, so I, I tend to write music that is pretty darn convoluted <laughs> and uh it, it's just a known quantity and i don't do it because i like get off to you know making people struggle although i do think there are those types out there we shall not name them but i do it because like that's just the material that my mind generates and it's what i like to hear but i've had to learn over the years to go to painstaking efforts to make sure that i'm conveying those ideas effectively what i'm suggesting is simple stuff like you know beam your stuff correctly like maybe instead of writing a bar of like i don't know 2116 maybe you can break that up into smaller bars like i don't know five four plus a 116 bar or whatever it has to be you know like like a lot of it, it's like simple best practice stuff like that i think the other thing about vocal music is like with most instruments there are certain things you can expect of people at every level of of technique whereas with the voice it can be a lot more variable what certain people can do i know great singers who can't straight tone to save their life yeah. and it's just their 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 vocal mechanism is not built for it it's not going to be healthy for them and they haven't reached a point where they know how to do it for themselves and they're still great singers yeah whereas you can expect certain level of of you know a violinist um and kind of expect them to have a certain level of technique but i, I think you know the other thing for for composers is to do a little time with pedagogy with looking at what the physical instrument of the voice even looks like yeah yeah because like i said it's just it's it's not obviously as complicated as writing for something like like a harp or a guitar or some of these things where it is just a kind of tricky to learn how to write for them but voices are just so variable even day to day yeah definitely when you are working with musicians to to put on a new piece how much of it for you 
uh, I won't ask you to speak for every composer, is collaborative versus more like you're trying to get them to bring a specific vision to life? Or does it just kind of vary by piece? I will say that, you know, I, I don't know what to what extent you guys have discussed these the article that I sent you all, but, um, you know, I in that article, they talk about, you know, Stravinsky being like a hard line um, sort of literalist with regards to the score. Like he sees it as just something that people are just there to execute verbatim. I lean more towards that school of thought. My music is somewhat anal retentive in terms of how it's notated, but I, I, but only to the extent that it needs to be. Again, I'm not out here trying to make anyone suffer. Um, that's just not my MO, but I do have very specific ideas, and most of the time I do want to force an interpretation. But there are different schools of thought on that. You know, you could be Arvo Pert and like just have nothing. <laughs> just, just have nothing telling you what to do. But as an aside, you know... Um, Actually, you all, you both know Dr. Hanks. Um, he once told me a story in undergrad about how uh, he was in a recording session with Parrot, and surprise, surprise, he had extremely specific ideas as to how he wanted his music to be sung uh, in the studio, and they would have to do so many different things. He just takes. didn't put it on paper. No, he did not. So I just want to, you know, urge people that, you know, have a predilection towards non-specificity in their score making to maybe reconsider because chances are you actually have a really specific idea about what you want and you probably will get a better performance if you just tell people what that is so i would say it i my process is less collaborative but i'm also i always have a mentality of like if i you know if someone wants me to change a thing like if it's just easier to change the change a thing than to make them you know suffer through learning it and the music doesn't really suffer as a result. I'm open to doing that. I think yeah. I'm more accommodating than other people in that regard. Um, I'm. I just want a good performance. You know, I just want something to sound good. Um, yeah. And if it's something's just going to be taxing in a way that isn't rewarding, then like I, I don't really see a point in doing that. Um, most of the time, I don't have to actually do it. But I think the fact that I'm willing to offer it is something that people appreciate. But yeah, generally, like in terms of like what the piece ends up being, though, 99% of it is me. You know, and maybe one percent of it ends up changing, but that's going to be different to everyone. You know, and I have some pieces that do, like, well, a few vocal pieces of mine now um, have some improvisatory sections, and like, you know, at least with regards to my style of music, I put them in there because, you know, I could write in, you know, a really cool gospel-sounding solo in there, and it would sound great every time, and I would know it would sound great every time because I designed it that way. Or I could just let someone show their personality in the piece and the spirit of something like that happening musically can be allowed to, to take place instead of me imposing it on them. So I, I think you have to figure out what your own stylistic relation is uh, to freedom and and structure. And then you have to work within those bounds to, to uh, with the performers to, to, to kind of like find the, the happy medium that, that is, is right. Uh, whether it be uh, an instrumentalist or a singer, if they had something in your music where it, either they knew that like the physical repetition was going to hurt them, you know, violinists with their hands, singers with their voices, yeah. how would you want them to approach you in, in terms of letting you know, like, hey, I'm not sure I can keep doing this without risking an injury? Oh, I would just say Mark, you know. Um, I, you know, I, I had a coaching with the violinist uh, a little over, over a year ago. And it had a lot of overpressure, you know, so intentionally applying too much bow pressure to create distortion. And that's, it was a nine, nine and a half minute long piece. And it's a lot of that. It's very tiring. 
it's a very tiring piece. And like, you know, she was like, Hey, I'm not going to go all out when I play through this for you right now. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, like there's, I, I do not think I would have benefited much more from hearing her, you know, do all of that in a coaching for me. It was much more important to me that she, you know, was able to go on with the rest of her day and play whatever else she had to do instead of just wrecking herself for me for, you know, whatever, whatever amount of time we were together. Um, and I would say the same thing to a singer, like just mark, you know, or take it down the octave or do whatever. Like that's, that's fine. It's what I would do. <laughs> and it's what I have done. Yeah. Well, I think that's the hard thing for young singers is either, you know, you're not practiced enough at marking to know how to do it healthily or, you know, you, you constantly feel the pressure to go all out. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's really no shame in singing. And that's just a lesson you learn. Yeah, no, it definitely. There's really no shame in just singing down the octave, really. I think people get a little bit too, like, I think they intellectualize it too much. Like, it, it, it's really, marking doesn't have to be this, like, complex thing. You know, that's that's very nice if you can sustain a really beautiful, you know, mezzo piano for, like, you know, however long you have to do it. That's very nice. Not everyone can do that super well. If it's just easier to sing it down the octave, then sing it down the damn octave. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, our our audience is obviously primarily singers. And like, what are some things you wish when you are working with singers in new works? How can people be better collaborators? Be the kind of people you call back for more work. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, that's loaded. Okay, um, the nervous uh, laughter. <laughs> there are so many <laughs> memories flooding. This. Yeah, unfortunately, flashbacks <laughs> the trauma. from years past. Oh God. Um, well, you know, I hate to I hate to be such a binarist in, 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 in this. I hate to really divide things into the, you know, the X's and the Y's. But really, so I, I do see this as a largely black and white issue. So I'm just going to continue talking about it in such terms. And people can grill me in the comments or whatever. I don't care. This is yet again another thing of either you care or you don't. And I have worked with both. <laughs> and the people who do care, and like I will say, like the music scene is full of people that are like, down as hell like they will they will do the thing and they will you know and they uh, sometimes they, they, at their own expense you know um to make the piece happen and i think that that's great i think that enthusiasm should be tempered a little bit just just to have a little bit of space for self-preservation you know but i think that that's awesome and like so i i don't want to denigrate new music performers or new music singers specifically as a whole because like there, there are a lot of singers i would dare i say the majority of them uh, are like this the ones that really like are in the music scene and like do this for a long time that said there are also and this is true of any music scene people who don't care who are not prepared um you know people who for instance never bring their music to rehearsal i knew someone who did this uh who just never brought their music to rehearsal ever you know for example this was a grown man uh, with a comparable level of education to me in music and just just couldn't be bothered you know so like don't do that um you know basic professionalism goes a really long way you know um just be professional um i i really i don't really have extensive demands beyond that just like be just be normal please god i i don't i'm not asking for much i don't have much to add yeah. <laughs> We do talk about that a little bit earlier when we're talking about people who are all in or not. And that is kind of the unfortunate thing about undergrad when people are obviously asked to be in projects or forced to be in projects without mm. necessarily wanting to, which is, is good and bad. Because I think, you know, people should be exposed to a lot of new music. But we were talking about how when you remove people's ability to say if they do or don't want to be in a project, it makes a lot of problems for everybody because schedules don't align 
people get stressed out people don't care enough yeah uh you know that brings me to another soapbox that i could spend another hour talking about which is it is simply the nature of composition degrees that you have to graduate with other people performing your music and yet virtually no school that i know of gives you any kind of infrastructure to meet performers who are willing to play your music for free which then begs the question if i have to get performers to play my music to graduate and a lot of them don't want to do it unless they get paid you are essentially tacitly taxing people just to graduate just because they're composers in effect this is a problem i have a big problem with this maybe other people could think i'm 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 uh, being Pollyanna-ish about this, but but that's, that's something I have a huge issue with. And so, you know, I, you know, even now at 25, like, I have very few recordings of my music compared to the amount of stuff that I've written. And it's simply because, like, I had to spend a lot of undergrad and grad school just begging people to play my stuff. In grad school, I had to get mass yeah. email lists and just email uh, literally, I mean, a hun- sometimes 100 people, you know, just to get one that would do it for free. And then they would probably not show up to rehearsal and not learn the music and all that, et cetera. You know what I mean? Like, that's, it's not good. It's not a good system. And it's a shame because there actually are plenty of people who are in some way interested in being more a part of new music. Right. Um, But you're right. There's not a good place for everyone to connect, for everyone to even, you know, it, it would be nice to have kind of that message board where you can be like, listen, I'd love to be a part of new pieces, but here's my basic schedule just so you kind of get an idea so you can find people without necessarily having to do all those cold calls. Yeah. But that's a that's a good point. There isn't an easy way for a lot of people to reach a bunch of students and really see <laughs> you almost need your own social media site within the schools yeah. to be like, I'm interested in performing these types of pieces. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, but now we're going to try, <laughs> we're going to take a moment after talking about all of that. We're going to sell these kids on doing new music because I think we mentioned earlier in this episode that unfortunately the way undergrads and undergrad programs are usually structured, people get a bad taste in their mouth for new music, whether that be, um, you know, for all the variety of reasons. But I, I don't think many undergrad programs are good at introducing kids to new music in a way that makes them excited to do more of it. And so people kind of gradually drop off of working with composers and working with stuff because they get this idea that, you know, every experience is going to be bad because they had a bad experience in undergrad. Yeah. But we want to talk a little bit about what's great about doing new music. I think it is true that unfortunately, due to various musico-philosophical movements of the last century, there is still a predominant aesthetic of austerity and complexity for their own sake in new music. I think that that's just something that most people would agree on. There is an emphasis against emotionality that people like Stockhausen um, advocated for and more towards music as an abstract thing that is something more akin to his science, moving towards some sort of uh, vague telos of ultimate complexity and perfection. I don't agree with that i i think that that's just not a thing because like music is necessarily incredibly diverse you know that that historically is excluded non-western music the music of well for instance black americans um and you know just all other kinds of vernacular musics so i'm not really a believer in that kind of thing that school of aesthetics does still have a substantial influence over how new music is taught in an academic setting 
and how music is made in an academic setting and also outside of it. Um, there's There's been a growing reaction to it. But I just want to say that perception that you, potential new music performer, might have that this stuff is just austere and scary and has nothing to do with feelings um, is not necessarily true. Uh, and I would encourage you to find the stuff that connects with you. Like, I know the music that I like to listen to, you know, and, and to me, I'm like, this stuff gets me hyped. Like, it makes me feel awesome and, like, excited as I do about any any kind of music or any, any kind of opera. Like, it makes me feel the way that other music makes me feel. And that's what draws me to it. So, you know, just try and take on the projects that make you feel that way. I mean, if you have a choice in the matter, sometimes you got to get the back. I get it. You know? uh, and, and, like, I've been there. You know, and that's fine. But like, you know, let's say if you're like an undergrad, you know, and someone's like, hey, like you want to perform my music? Like, and if you have the time and you like their stuff, just just do it. Like, give them give them a chance. I, I see so much like hand waving or, or immediate dismissal of any new anything by perform by by singers and instrumentalists with new music. I think because of this this image problem that I'm trying to outline, and I think that that's really unfortunate. I think everyone misses out. The beauty is there are more composers than ever. Yeah. So just like. Get out there. Get into it. You'll never know the kinds of people, the kinds of aesthetics that you'll, that you'll that you'll encounter unless you try it. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, that there definitely is an image problem with new music in general. And I think the best way to kind of counteract that is, like you said, to just continue to look at new composers and look at new music because there's so much new music out there that's based off of popular music that explores that realm. Um, so much new music that's like, tonal and like Absolutely. romantic if that's like your thing like you don't have to only explore the the kind of austere very like atonal type yes. mathematical music like there's new music in all genres and all facets so like just you got just got to find the new music that kind of fits your interest and you may run into very complex music that's that's also the nature of just like people who are writing new music are often looking to push boundaries with things so you may run into some complex projects but the benefit of that is that you will also be pushing yourself and your skills and your idea of music so it can be very good to push yourself and and often the people who write more complex music also know it's going to take some time to get everything to line up to get everything perfect so i i would say be willing to go into those harder projects for the sake of expanding how you approach your music because just like everything once you push yourself past that boundary a lot of the things that come before that so say you struggle with rhythm a bit and you choose to take on a new music piece that is rhythm rhythmically complex when you go back to your old music it will feel a lot easier <laughs> absolutely if nothing else <laughs> absolutely oh yeah oh this is something i didn't get to mention earlier yeah. but i really really want to i really want to impart this upon composers not all kinds of difficulty are the same. I was hanging out with a composer colleague last night, and he was telling me, Anna DeFrepro, uh, who I know you love dearly. Um, you know, How dare you mention that name on this podcast? <laughs> I know I don't mean to desecrate this, this space, but um, look, I have, I have my own feelings about her. But, uh, this I is no longer she's, a safe right. space. I'm so sorry. But I think she's right about the following. You know, she's talking about Bellini. No, she has Lucia, right? Um, and how, like, that's, like, the hardest stuff ever. But when you're actually doing it, it's, it feels easy. And it's because Bellini was writing for very specific people who had weird freak voices. And that's why the roles are so damn hard. You know, but he knew the people personally. He knew we could ask what he could ask them to do. And he understood the voice to a profound extent that when he could have them, you know, singing these weird tessitoras and like do these crazy extensions and all that, um, he knew 
what it would take to do that, and he would cater the music, he would write it in such a way that it could be executed easily, you know, and in a technically sound fashion. And the best thing, and, and you can't go for this with every piece, because sometimes you have to go for art, you know, and, and some, you know, sometimes you have to. Some, but the best thing in a piece for a singer is that it feels good to do it, if it's fun to execute. If you can write that way, people will love you. And ultimately, people performing your music is a, a lot of it's about how much they love you, not just like I mean. I'm being very clear when I say how much they love you, um, and it's I can definitely say it's true in my own life. The people that that rock with me, that really ride with me as people, are also the ones that are the biggest advocates for my music, you know. And and everyone else is just going to be either ambivalent or, in some cases, have even countered antagonistic <laughs> towards you. <laughs> So you got to find the people that love you and 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 and, and keep them close, man, because those are going to be your best collaborators. But yeah, writing idiomatically has its benefits. You can write really hard music that's idiomatic. You can also write hard music that's not idiomatic. But just know that that's what you're asking someone to do, and just really ask yourself if it's if it's worth it. Always ask, is it worth it? I think you bring up a good point there, though, which is uh, another part of getting to perform new music is when you do start to work with composers whose music you enjoy performing. Um, it's the best form of networking possible because if you both are advocating for each other, you're going to have more work with that person and it's going to be mutually beneficial yeah. long term because you're going to be able to make music that you enjoy making, you know, and that you enjoy performing regularly. And also, because as, also on our little list, doing world premieres is a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Because you're performing something that people have no expectation of and... And, you know, if it's a, an opera or anything else, you also get to be, like, the first iteration of that character. It doesn't carry the weight that a lot of what we perform has, which is, like, <laughs> they've heard the best singers in the world sing this piece. Yeah. Yeah. Nico Castell hasn't written about this. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and that's that's the joy of that. And also, world premieres are such a fun bonding experience. Like, oh, I remember yeah. every world premiere I've ever done. You're, like, in the trenches. Um, and they... I'm serious. <laughs> truly, truly. You you didn't get to hear our, our discussion earlier, um, but I, I talked about an opera where we did the entire first act, second act. I don't even remember it, and I couldn't tell you at this point. Uh, we didn't know what it was about until afterwards. No one told us. <laughs> truly in the trenches. But, um, <laughs> but also, you know, a lot of these pieces are based on modern concepts. Yeah. It's fun to sing about things that are happening now. It's fun to sing about more modern conceptions of some of these ideas. And that's why we that's why we need new music, you know, because this art form should be a living art form. It should not be a museum piece. Back in the lives of the great composers when they were alive, you know, new music was what you went and saw. Mozart didn't get to hear Bach in his lifetime. And it took Mendelssohn having this huge revival movement that he started and, and bringing that music back into the, the repertory. I mean, it just wasn't a thing, you know, I'm pretty sure like even Handel would hardly have heard Schutz, you know, who was writing really just a generation before him. So it's kind of a historical, this current state of affairs that we now have yeah. a canon that we perform ad nauseum and the new music is essentially an addendum you know, a sort of crown, if you will, on top of that. I think that's, that's it's it's really just completely backwards. I think that we should just emphasize what is current and what is fresh and platform it, especially given the kinds of people that have not traditionally been platformed. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and speaking with us and uh, helping our singers get a little bit of better idea what it's like to work with a composer and how to work better with composers. And just, as, you know, all the joys and pitfalls of new music. Yeah. <laughs> Where can our uh, audience find you? Where can they connect with you? Jens has a ton of really cool projects coming up, almost none of which he's allowed to speak about yet. But we will <laughs> post those on Opera Offstage when they actually happen. Yes. Um, I, I feel like a, a spy. It's, it's very weird. Best places to find me are YouTube. Just search Jens Ibsen, my name. Um, I... This might be a bit racy, so you have to edit it out. But I always tell people I'm the only black one, so it's really easy to find me. <laughs> so um, there's that. Uh, and then I'm Jens.Ipsen on Instagram. It's just idiot proof. Um, and then also I'm Jensipsen.com. Even more idiot proof. So there's really no excuse to not be engaging <laughs> maximally with my content. Um no, but like, you know, if I'm keeping oh in God. I'm the only black one. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> like and subscribe. Smash that like Smash button. That on like that button. YouTube. <laughs> you can also yeah. talk to him. He's he's in the Discord. You can always chat with him a little bit there. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. like Yeah. I'm unsettlingly online now. I am on Discord a good bit. So <laughs> as, as we all are. Aren't we all? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I, I hope you do feel a little less afraid of approaching new music. And if you've had a bad experience in the past, I hope you do give it another shot because there are so many great composers writing really cool new works out there. And it's such a cool experience to be a part of them. Absolutely. Also, you know, opera can't continue without new music. So <laughs> go out there and perform some new music, y'all. You know what else can't continue? This podcast without your reviews. <laughs> no. <laughs> be so helpful if you guys would go and leave us a review it it does help other people find us and we do love to read them so if you have a second go pop on the apple podcast app and leave us a little review um another thing that's super helpful is if you guys will support our patreon we have redone our tiers on there to make them a little more concise so you're getting even more bang for your buck uh, we have lots of really fun stuff we're gonna start offering in these next couple months so i hope you guys will go and check it out and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.